Hello and welcome to the Wellness Trinity Podcast, where we interview top holistic experts and bring you natural solutions for modern day wellness. Let's get started with your host, Dr. Jacqueline. Hi, welcome. Thank you for joining the Wellness Trinity Podcast. I'm Dr. Jacqueline owner of thewellnesstrinity.com, where we provide natural solutions for modern day wellness. So just a little disclaimer before we get started, what we discuss in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. What you do with the information is to be used at your discretion as the recommendations are not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure or prevent any diseases. So this episode was brought to you guys by Cellcore Biosciences. Some of you guys might know by now that I also work with Cellcore and they create amazing supplements that actually work. They do the job and they help restore people's health. I have been using their products and protocols for the last year and have seen incredible results with my clients and I'm excited that now I get to help practitioners as well do the same. So if you're in the Nevada or Oregon territory, I am your go-to girl. If you are interested in signing up to use the products, let me know, and then I'll direct you to the right person if it's not me. And if you're the general public and you're interested in learning more about the CellCore Detox, you can visit my website at thewellnesstrinity.com slash CellCore Detox. So today I have a special guest on the show. His name is Dr. Kurt Wohler, and he was actually one of my teachers when I went to the Great Plains Seminar last year, and he has an amazing autism course that he teaches practitioners, and so I'm just going to let you know a little bit about him before we get started and diving into the whole topic of autism. So Kurt Wohler, DO, has been a functional and integrated medicine physician, as well as a biomedical autism specialist for the over two decades. He is an author of several books, including Autism, The Road to Recovery, Methyl B12 Therapy for Autism, Methyl B12 for Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia, and Five Things You Must Do Right Now to Help with Your Rheumatoid Arthritis. He is a lecturer throughout the United States and international, educator, and experienced clinician offering specialized treatment and testing for individuals with complex medical conditions such as autism spectrum disorders, autoimmune, chronic digestive and neurodegenerative disorders. His health consulting practice for autism alone is multinational with families from various countries. Dr. Wohler serves as a lab advisor both for BioHealth Laboratory and Great Plains Laboratory or GPL, as some of you guys say. He developed and teaches the course on organic acid test or OAT, interpretation and practice implementation for the GPL Academy as part of their ongoing educational seminars. Dr. Wohler is the co-founder of Integrative Medicine Academy, an online integrative medicine health practitioner training program with multiple online courses in gastrointestinal disorders, SIBO mastery course, autism, which is the autism mastery course, adrenal and hormone problems, which is his hormone mastery course, functional medicine, which is the functional mastery course, organic acids testing, which is the essential and advanced oat mastery courses, and environmental toxicity, which is the toxicity mastery course. 
He also runs an extensive biomedical autism educational website called Autism Recovery System. So, Dr. Kurt Wohler, welcome to the show. That was quite an intro. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think they should know it all because, <laughs> right. um, you know, they need to realize that we have an amazing person talking about autism and behind the scenes here. And well, well, thank you. I so appreciate honored. that. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So let's dive right in. Um, what's going on with autism in the world? What are the current statistics and adults and or oh even gosh. kids? It, well, it's a, it's a huge problem. It's been a huge problem for many years. Um, the numbers aren't getting any better and they, and they change, right? You know, according to the Centers for Disease Control, they try to, you know, get kind of updated numbers every year, every couple of years. Currently right now in the U.S., we're looking at one in 59 children carrying an autism spectrum diagnosis. That turns out to be about one, I think it's about one in 37 boys, um, approximately one in 51 girls, because there's a four to one ratio of boys to girls in autism. Um, as far as adults, they figure probably over the next 10 years, there's going to be 500,000, about 50,000 per year in the United States alone of autistic kids and teenagers now moving into adulthood. So, you know, greater than, you know, 18 years of age. And the cost of that, you know, is in the billions. So it's difficult to project for sure. But from an economic standpoint, it's significant. From a personal family standpoint, it's significant. They figure about, on average, it costs, you know, above and beyond a, a basic budget for a family caring for just neurotypical individuals. Add on top of that about $60,000 a year per family caring for an autistic child. Now, unfortunately, too, as many of these kids become adults, they're limited in their ability to work. So, you know, unemployment's an issue, housing is an issue. So there's a, there's a, it's a big, big problem, unfortunately. But uh, fortunately, there's a lot that we can do from a functional and integrated medicine standpoint to at least, you know, try to make an impact on these kids health early on and what the future might, you know, hold for them down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good note to make. And that's why we're doing this podcast here is because I, I want my audience and people that are, are chiming into what I'm doing here to realize there are solutions. Um, maybe some people might be able to get back to normal and maybe some people are, uh, might not be all the way normal, but at least they can live a better quality life. That's, that's how I think of it. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, you know, I don't like the word cure when it comes to autism because you can have individuals who can recover and there are, and I've had, you know, many in my practice. Um, but, you know, I believe that there's hope and help for everybody, regardless of their age, they could be two, 20, 22, or 92, they still can be helped in some way with regards to their health. Um, I, you know, I learned this lesson a long time ago, and I can't remember how long, back, probably going back 10 years, maybe 15 years ago, and I just was kind of the early days of this. But I had a family that came to me, and at that time, their son was 17 to 18. He was pretty severe. And I got a, I got a glimpse of what their life must have looked like on a daily basis. This, they came into my office. Their, their son was very severe, uh, very erratic, just, you know, they needed constant attention. And the dad told me, he said, listen, I'm not looking for a magic cure-all. He says, if we can get to the point 
where I, where I can take my family out to a restaurant and not have it turn into a disaster, that enough, that would be for me and his family would be a victory. Because he said, listen, I don't expect my son to be cured or recovered, whatever. And not every parent feels that, but he knew what he was facing with his particular son. And we were able to get there. Um, they were able to achieve that. And that was a victory for them. Um, it was a big one. And of course, there's all different kinds of stories and different levels of severity of autism in different cases. Clearly, I would love for every individual with autism to lose their diagnosis and go on and live a, you know, a, a normal life, whatever that is. But mm -hmm. um, the reality is, is you have to work with people where they are and try and optimize potential. So that's what we're doing when we implement biomedical intervention is trying to optimize potential as best we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how have you seen these numbers change over the years in the past, since, you know, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, just, I don't know. It seems like there's an upward incline. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, California, I used to work in California down in San Diego. That's where I got my start. They've always been a state that's had kind of the gold standard as far as tracking numbers of autistic individuals entering the, um, the special services kind of network they have in California. So, and the numbers have gone up. And one of the things that's been argued about autism is are the numbers truly going up or are we just getting more diagnosis? Mm. You know, well, the argument against the more diagnosis is if the numbers aren't really changing, right? If the, the amount of kids aren't really changing in, in who's being diagnosed, and this has pretty much just been a flatline effect going back 30, 40 years, well, where are all the autistic adults? Because if, if there were just as many autistic kids being diagnosed back in the 70s and 80s, or let's say they existed, weren't diagnosed, well, at this point, they're now entering the different services that we have for adults. But those numbers really haven't gone up like, we, like we've seen in children. So that tsunami is coming. Okay. Again, as these, I mean, as the Centers for Disease Control predicts, 50,000 teenagers now becoming adults who have autism are going to be hitting the adult services. So the adult numbers are going to go up, but the kid numbers keep going up as well. Mm, okay. So why do you think that we're seeing more over the years? It's a complicated problem. I, I mean, I, I got my start in this world of autism going back to the late 90s. And at that time, there was felt to be a lot of contributions from an environmental standpoint. So at, at that, in the early days, it was primarily felt to be strongly linked to thimerosal, the mercury preservative in vaccines. And, you know, let's be honest, there are some individuals with autism where vaccines have either been a causative or contributing factor. I've seen that in my practice. And, but I've had individuals in my practice where there's not really a, a real strong link to that. Um, I've, actually, I've had a few kids in my practice over the years who, who developed autism who never had any vaccines. So I can't say that in every single case, it's the sole cause. Or, uh, but, you know, it, it, there, there is some. Um, and I can't say that mercury toxicity was the only culprit. It's been a, a component in certain individuals. But those, the exposures that have changed over the years, I think what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, um, individuals 
that all of us have unique genetic profiles. Some of us can manage, some of us can handle different exposures than others. And we're looking at an environmental impact on top of genetics, so the epigenetic factors affecting the genetics. And we've got individuals who are being exposed to multiple things that you know, either can't process those things effectively um, or you know, they're being you know, bombarded with too many things from the environment all at one time. So I think a lot of it comes down to environment and then just personal genetic factors, hereditary factors that are being expressed, unfortunately, mm. uh, at a very early age. Okay. So why do you think that boys are more effective than girls? Well, they've looked at this um, in the going back many years ago, there were some researchers that looked at the ability of boys biochemically to be able to detoxify specific types of uh, environmental toxins. So for example, the mercury scenario, they actually looked at, at uh, neuron cell cultures and they found that when they put this thimerosal in the culture medium of these neurons, there was a percentage of those neurons that were killed or died off. Mm. But when they added testosterone to a, 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 you know, let's say half of the samples, it accelerated the nerve cell death. So it's often been felt that perhaps testosterone may play a role somehow in accentuating the expression of toxins that might be in the body. That's, that's certainly been one theory. Hmm. And then there's probably other factors just involved genetically um, in how certain boys don't, again, process things or effectively manage oxidative stress. There's a recent paper that just came out that looking at a mold toxin called okra toxin. And okra toxin is a mycotoxin that's produced by aspergillus mold. And it turns out that males lack some of the metabolic enzymes in the liver, particularly the, the phase one system, what's called the P450 system, that is involved in metabolizing okra toxin. And oak, so basically, you can't metabolize okra toxin. Within that P450 system. You know what? It kind of cut out for a second. Sure. Uh, do you mind repeating that last? Yeah. So, where do you want me to start? Where it was. It out? was literally like probably the last couple sentences you said. <laughs> so the so it's felt that with okra toxin exposure, because males lack certain enzymes in the liver that help to metabolize this okra toxin, that you know that could be another reason why we're seeing a four to one ratio because they can't get rid of the toxin and the toxin itself affects the nervous system, affects the brain, affects neurotransmitter levels mm. that are often imbalanced in autism. So I've seen that on the mycotoxin test. It seems pretty common that people have that um, okra toxin. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from aspergillus mold. So aspergillus is a common mold in our environment. So here in the Northwest, right, we have, you know, uh, in Washington as well, it gets pretty moist. Um, and, but you can get aspergillus ex exposure through food. So food that's been contaminated with mold. But it's not, the, the important thing is, is, is a lot of us can be exposed to different types of 
toxins, chemicals, mycotoxins, but we're not all toxic from that exposure. Mm -hmm. Because again, we, we, depending on our overall health status, you know, genetics, liver capacity, antioxidant status, we might be able to manage certain toxins better than others. Mm -hmm. But this particular toxin in many of the autistic kids, you have to look and think back, it's affecting them at a certain period of time in their life where they're still developing. So physiologically, they're still developing, neurologically, they're still developing. But you know, if we've got compromised genetics within the liver that don't allow you to metabolize this particular toxin, and then it goes on and creates imbalances in the brain and nervous system, that might be enough in susceptible individuals to you know, either cause or at least exacerbate an underlying autistic condition. Mm, okay. Okay. So when kids are autistic, how long do they usually live? Well, God, that's really hard to get absolute accurate statistics on that because if you think about the epidemic of autism, it's really been expressing itself over the past 20 years or so. I mean, you go back even into the, you know, the uh, early 80s and 70s, you know, there was about one in 10,000 individuals that were being diagnosed with autism. I mean, the reality is it's not that difficult to detect, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. I mean, you, you go back and talk to people who were in elementary school, middle school, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, and most of them will tell you, I, I didn't know anybody that had these kind of problems, with, you know, because most of the autistic individuals mm-hmm. or kids, they stand out, right? They have poor social mm-hmm. skills. They have a lot of behavioral issues. So it really wasn't that prevalent. So we don't really know, um, you know, as far as what the lifespan is going to be. It's likely if you have more com- uh, comorbid conditions, have some underlying seizure disorder. So that certainly could be a component. Digestive system problems, uh, gut issues or a major problem. And if you've got, you know, either just dysbiosis or inflammatory issues occurring in the small intestine that compromise the immune system, well, that can have its consequences long-term neurologically, cardiovascular-wise, et cetera. The other thing about autistic individuals is they usually have very poor diets. Mm. And it's not that the parent maybe isn't trying to feed them healthy food, but the more severe individuals often self-limit their diets. Mm. So they're not eating a wide variety of foods. And of course, they're not typically exercising, you know, like you should, or have the ability to really, you know, comprehend kind of how to take care of themselves. So that's going to have an impact as well. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have accurate data because again, it's, we need to kind of probably go 20 years down the road to really see how this is going to play out. Mm -hmm. So do you think that um, the kids that are autistic, a lot of them are born with it or it happens later in life? Well, I, Here's the way I've broken it down in my practice and what I've seen over the past 20 plus years. Um, And again, these aren't, you know, these are just my, you know, 
percentages that I've seen within my practice. This isn't something that's looked at from a research facility. But as I look back over the past two decades, I would say about a third of my practice is regressive autism. So that's where the child was, you know, the parents described their child had a normal pregnancy, normal delivery, delivery, and they actually were progressing at a normal pace, even according to information from the pediatrician. They were meeting their weight, their height, their head circumference. They were starting to talk. They're being interactive. Parents many times have videos of their first birthday. And you've got kids fully aged. And then around 15 to 18 months, they regress. And most of the regressive of autisms that I've seen, it's a very strong link to a series of vaccines that they got. I can't say 100%, but a good proportion of them. So there's the, what I call the likely one-third regressive autisms linked somehow to vaccines. And there might be some environmental factors that compounded the issue too. Mm -hmm. About another third are those kids that they regressed, but it's not really clear cut as to what caused it. That have the what I consider to be the vaccine regressive regressives. This, these are the kids that they get a series of shots, and with shots, and within two or three days, there's a distinct difference. Lock, la, lock, loss of language and eye contact and behaviors. I mean, it's it's a night and day, and there's videos of this. Mm-hmm. And then there's another third that have regression, but it's not as clear cut as to what something was linked. And the regression sometimes seems to take a little longer, you know, two months, three months, four months, five months, spread out over time. But it generally tends to happen around the same time frame, 12 months, maybe 15, 18 months. Mm. And then the last third are those kids that just seem to come in the world um, developmentally delayed. Mm-hmm. Parents will say they just kind of had a sense that their child just wasn't, you know, typical right from the get-go. So I kind of break it down into thirds. Again, it's just an approximation, but that's been my assessment over the past okay. you know, couple of decades. It sounds like most of the people that you've dealt with are, it, it happens after the pregnancy and it almost even seems a lot of it has to do with va- vaccines or even environmental issues. Um, that one third, about one third that you're having that seem like they were born like that, would you say it, it's because the parents are probably toxic themselves? I, I really can't say for sure. Um, I mean, there's always that possibility. I don't know of any specific studies that have looked at that. Um, what, what they do know is that certain medications so a mother who's been on an antidepressant, for example, like, a, like an SSRI, you know, a Zoloft or a Prozac, something in that category, increased risk. Um, so there's really, there's nothing that's absolutely concrete. I mean, they've looked at vitamin D levels. So mothers who are vitamin D have, you know, an increased risk of autism. Uh, I recently saw a paper where they looked at Mothers who are uh, taking acetaminophen or Tylenol might have an increased risk of kids with attention mm. deficit disorder. But it's again, it's not 100%, you know, and many of these studies are kind of one offs, right? So it was, a, it was one study that was done, but there's not been a follow up, you know, done either to challenge it or to confirm it. Okay. So it's, a, it's difficult 
to know. I, I think, you know, we could kind of look and say, well, if environmentally we're being exposed to more things, mm-hmm. you know, chemicals and whatever, then, you know, there's certainly an increased possibility of having moms or whatever, having offspring that, you know, are autistic. But it's kind of the same thing of why are we seeing an increase in cancer? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, if you look back, go back 100 years, you know, cancer was not a common way to die. I mean, most people died of either accidents or bacterial or some other kind of infection. Cancer was actually relatively low on the list. Why is it now almost one of the number one causes of death? So is it food? Is it our environment? Is it just a combination of factors? Well, probably so. Mm, Okay. Okay. So when you look at the organic acid test, and actually because I haven't really talked about the organic acid test on my podcast before, would you mind first explaining what that is and what we're looking for on that? So the organic, and the one that I run in my practice and the one I teach about comes from Great Plains Laboratory. And let me just go back to the story, okay? So we got to go back to 1997, 1998. I was, uh, you know, right out of my internship and newly in practice. I was working for a doctor in San Diego that was doing nutritional medicine. So he was already kind of doing some early functional medicine in his practice, even though I didn't know what that term meant at the time. We get a flyer in the mail for something called a DAN conference, which stood for Defeat Autism Now. Mm. And the Autism Research Institute is still in San Diego. They are early, in those early days, they were the ones that sponsored this DAN conference. The only reference point I had to autism was the movie Rain Man that I'd seen in college. I never, I didn't know about autism prior to that. We go to this conference. I'm totally overwhelmed and blown away by all the information. Um, all the immunology and biochemistry and gut problems that they're talking about in these kids. But I said, well, these are the same kind of problems I'm seeing in my adult patients. So I get back to my practice, you know, shortly thereafter, start getting an influx of kids coming into my practice. And the, the main thing I remember from that conference was hearing a lecture by Dr. Shaw of Great Plains Lab about this thing called organic acid testing. So I ran my first test, totally clueless about what it was, and he helped kind of walk me through it. And, you know, I initiated some treatment based on it. So early, from my early days in medicine, I got used to running oat test, organic acid test. And what it is, is organic acids are compounds that our body produces naturally. So like lactic acid is an organic acid. That's an expression of some biochemical system in our body. So we can get an idea of an imbalance somewhere in our body by looking at different organic acid patterns. And these organic acids are heavily concentrated in the urine, more so, they, more so than they are in the blood. Most labs and most hospitals have their own organic acid profiles. And most of them do it to pick up on what are called inborn errors of metabolism in children who would have these developmental or metabolic or genetic diseases. But as time has gone on, there's been other organic acids that have been investigated and and discovered that can be reflective of just other types of disorders that aren't necessarily linked to some serious genetic disease. And this is where Great Plains stepped in. We also have organic acids in our body that are produced by the organisms that live in our gut. So the bacteria 
yeast um, that get into our digestive system or are already there can produce their own organic acids. And those get absorbed and we can measure them in the urine as a reflection of imbalances happening in the digestive system. So the organic acids test that is, comes from Great Plains Lab has many markers that are linked to um, our own internal production of organic acids reflective of some kind of imbalance, as well as a representation of toxins or pathologies that might be occurring within our digestive tract from bacteria, from yeast, from candida, and even sometimes mold. So the oat in, in my practice is, it's a standard. It's, it's, it's like a doctor running a basic blood chemistry profile. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that important. It's the hub of the wheel. And you learn how to use it and you learn how to interpret it. It's a game changer in practice because there's so much information that you can obtain from it. And it's one of the, the main tests that I started running early on for the autistic kids because it detects, it detects organic acids from candida, from different types of clostridia bacteria. Um, from my, to, to end of investigate mitochondrial dysfunction, which mm -hmm. is a big problem in autism, mm -hmm. neurotransmitter imbalances. So there's a host of things that, that it investigates. In fact, I tell parents in my practice all the time, if they can only afford to do one test, just right from the get-go, they can only afford to do one thing, is to do the OAT. Because I, I know that if I at least have the OAT information, I can initiate some kind of intervention while we work on things over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are the most common infections you find for autistic kids? In, in, uh, they, uh, many of them have invasive candida problems. Uh, and what's so striking about how an autistic individual responds to candida, a lot of people have underlying candida problems. In an adult, it might manifest as fatigue, or it might cause headache, or causes some bloating. In the autistic kids, it can affect their behavior, affect their eye contact, it can affect their cognitive function. Mm. In fact, many times with the autistic kids, because candida and many yeast organisms actually metabolize glucose and they produce ethanol or alcohol, it causes silliness, this inappropriate laughter type behavior. I've had some parents even describe the yeast behavior with their kid as kind of like they had a, a couple drinks of alcohol. They're just, they're drunk on this. So that's very, very common. What's also very common and concerning in autism is clostridia infections. Mm -hmm. And there's a host of clostridia bacteria. Most people have heard of clostridia difficile mm -hmm. in the way that it affects the gut because it can lead to Clostridia difficile uh, infections, diarrhea, and then in some cases, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. But there are many different types of clostridia bacteria that can produce toxins that affect the brain and nervous system, including different strains of clostridia difficile. And just like the candida scenario where the, the autistic kids are very sensitive to the chemical compounds that, that candida produces, they're also extremely sensitive to the compounds that are produced by the bacteria. And one of the classic things you'll see in autism is when their clostridia markers are high, is they're irritable, agitated, sometimes self-injurious, and many times aggressive. 
And so I learned very early on that when I see those kind of patterns that I'm most likely dealing with some underlying infection problem in the gut, at least it tends to work at a high percentage, and that's where the organic acid comes into play. One of the unique things about the, uh, the toxins that Clostridia produces, it can actually interfere with dopamine metabolism mm. in the nervous system. And what happens when dopamine metabolism is impaired in the autistic scenario is what's happening is dopamine levels are usually going up. And as dopamine levels rise, it can rise too high and trigger some of this aberrant behavior, the aggressiveness, the irritability, the self-injury. Mm-hmm. And there's also a downside to too much dopamine in that itself is toxic to the brain and nervous system. So they've actually discovered now that metabolites of dopamine in the neuron can damage nerve cells. And so they're now looking at these kind of risk factors in things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease as well. Hmm. So if their dopamine is high, then how do you lower that? Well, if they have the infection, you got to treat the infection. Mm -hmm. So that's where you'd have to come in. And in some cases, you can use antibiotics or there's some botanical remedies that can be helpful too to lower uh, and get rid of the clostridia. The clostridia is tricky because it's a sophisticated organism. It forms spores. So these spores, think of it like a, it's like a shell. So these spores can get outside the body. They can survive outside the body in the environment, but they're the infective form of the organism. And so you have these sophisticated organisms that are, they're kind of, they're transforming, uh, transforming themselves depending on what kind of environment they're in, whether they're outside the body or inside the body. But they all tend to create different toxins that can affect people adversely. So that's one way. If the dopamine is high, you got to treat the clostridia and see if that's what the leading cause is. There are some other factors of why dopamine can be high autism too, but the clostridia is usually one of the more common ones. Okay. So what about the deficiencies you see common for autism? Well, nutrient deficiencies are a lot. And a lot of that goes back to the fact that many individuals with autism have a a low quality diet. Mm. So they're, they're self-selecting out certain foods. So I've seen kids that, you know, all they eat is celery, potato chips, and water Hmm. because they're so compromised that, and they have so many uh, taste sensitivities and texture issues from a sensory standpoint, that's all they'll Mm -hmm. consume. Mm -hmm. So you can run into a host of nutritional deficiencies. Common ones that I've seen are vitamin D. So a vitamin D deficiency is common in B vitamin deficiencies, uh, antioxidant deficiencies as well. And then um, sometimes we'll see iron deficiencies too, if they're not eating um, a well-balanced diet, you know, with, with meat, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the big ones. And oftentimes what we'll do as far as autism intervention, at least early on, is put individuals on foundational supplements. So mm-hmm. multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, kind of to help fill in those gaps nutritionally that they're mm-hmm. maybe not getting through their diet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what other tests do you like to run for kids that have autism? 
Well, I have five. I mean, well, at least there's a lot more, okay? But mm -hmm. I have sort of a core five that if I could do on everybody who's coming to see me, you know, that first visit, I would like to do um, the organic acid test. As a follow-up to that or a complement to that would be a comprehensive stool analysis to just take a look at the diversity of the microbiome in the Sorry, it cut out again. I, I think it might be your um, earphones. Maybe it's plugged in right. How are we doing now? That's good. I think what we're all getting is that most people are home right now, and so there's heavy internet usage. Yeah. Um, so I'll just start again. So a comprehensive stool analysis would be good just to look at digestive function, look at the microbiome, look at inflammation. Another test I'll do is what's called a food IgG profile. I want to look at IgG antibodies to different food sensitivities, gluten, dairy, other foods. And that comes from a dried blood spot. So it's a finger prick test that can, that can be done at home. My initial test that I'll try and do are all tests that can be done at home. There are many blood tests that can be useful in autism as well, but that, that could just be for another discussion because you know, anytime you're doing blood tests with somebody with autism, it complicates things because sometimes they have to be sedated, sometimes they have to be held down. It's not always easy. Mm -hmm, that makes so sense. The oat, the uh, stool, the food IgG. I also like doing a hair metals test. Mm -hmm. So a hair metals test is good because you get a snapshot view of metal exposure, but it also gives me an idea of mineral imbalances, particularly with certain minerals like selenium and then particularly lithium. I see a lot of autistic mm -hmm. kids low in lithium. The ones who typically are low in lithium tend to have a higher propensity to irritability, mm. to behavior problems, to anxiety, to being agitated. And then finally, now I'm doing the mycotox profile. So the mycotox is another thing that I'm looking to do right away because of the effects it can have um, mm -hmm. on overall gut function, immune function, and health. So those would be sort of the initial mm -hmm. core five. And again, if, it's, it's, if, if somebody says, hey, I can only do one thing, then I'll start with the oat. I'll start with the organic acid test. Okay. Have you done much of the um, GPL talks? I do. I usually will reserve that. Um, I usually reserve that if I get a strong suspicion of chemical exposure based on certain markers on the oat test. So there are certain markers on the oat test that are reflective of chemical exposure. So, I, I mean, I can make a justification to run a lot of tests. <laughs> so up front, but you know, you have to be sensitive to. Um, you know, you have to be sensitive to the family, certain financial circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, so some of that comes into play. I know that I can always come and do something like the GPL talks you know, in our second wave of testing, if need yeah. be. But yeah, that's an important test. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I kind of think of it, too. I, I, I look at a little bit more of the infection type of stuff first, the organic acid test, and then later down the road as we chip away at some of those and diving a little bit more deeper into the the chemicals and heavy metals and, and other right. things like that. It seems like it sets the body up for way more of a success when they're detoxing anyway. Is that what you find as well? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's always going to be a prioritization of, of things, of how things need to move, how things need to go. I, long, a long time ago, I, I developed something called the four pillar approach to biomedical intervention. And I, I still follow it today. And that is, is you first start with diet. Okay, so every patient that comes to us, whether they're autistic or not, you always need to start with diet. Diet is important. And that's it, uh, very meaningful in autism as well. The second is foundational supplements, just, you know, good foundational supplements to support health, to support any potential deficiencies that might exist. Third pillar is gut assessment, looking at gut function, pathogens, imbalances in the gut. The fourth pillar is what's called methylation, and that takes into the, that takes into the discussion not just the methylation cycle, but what the methylation cycle is connected to. Mm all the neurotransmitter pathways, the folate cycle. So that's a much broader category. But if you, if you work on a healthy diet and you work on foundational good nutrition and you work on gut function, many times the imbalances that might be occurring in the methylation cycle, sometimes they'll, they'll just be improved by working on the, the other three pillars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, where I don't start is I don't start at methylation. Right. So um, I don't think there's a magic bullet for any one of these things. It's a it's a there's a relationship that these different systems have to each other. Mm -hmm. So we always have to go back to the foundations, particularly in the autistic kids, is because they do have so many imbalances, both nutritionally, digestive wise uh, and diet wise. Mm hmm. So when you do these tests, do you find that with autistic kids or even adults that more so of the, the challenge is coming from the infections over a chemical or heavy metal toxicity, or is it about usually the same? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to generalize. Okay because I could pick apart certain patient populations where it might be reversed, but in general, the pathogens are the things that are most commonly causing the obvious problems, cognitively, behaviorally, socially. Now the pathogens might be expressing themselves because of some kind of environmental toxic exposure, mm-hmm. but the yeast is an issue and it's causing a problem, you know, because the body is imbalanced, but you've got to treat the yeast in order to try to lower the negative impact it has while at the same time you're working on the environmental exposures. And let me give you an example. And I've seen this for years where people say, well, you have to detoxify the heavy metals before you can get candida under control. So don't bother treating the candida until you get all the metals out. Well, that sounds great on paper. That sounds great in theory, right? But it could take, how long does it take to detox heavy metals? Right. It could take two years Mm -hmm. in some cases. And how do you know in every person that you're now at an absolute zero level of heavy metals? Mm -hmm. But if you have a kid who can't go to school, they've got behavioral problems, they can't sleep, um, they're extremely self-stimulatory. Well, now you have a dysfunctional situation within the family. So, you know, you have to many times treat the acute problem while you're working on the chronic problem that's causing it. Mm-hmm. And um, that 
that's the that's the difference between you know thinking of things in theory and actually being in you know you know ground level clinical practice right is that you have to really kind of you know deal with the here and now and then kind of deal with the long term you know issues that may be causing it but I can't sit around for two years and not not go after a child's yeast issues if they're having right. yeast behaviors. Yeah. So diet obviously can mess the gut microbiome up. And, um, and then we talked about environmental toxins. What are other reasons why people might have a, an overgrowth of yeast or fun, fungus or bacteria, parasites? Uh, chemical exposure. Yeah. So glyphosate, for example, has been shown to create problems in the microbiome where it, it, it limits or decreases diversity of good bacteria and allows for overgrowth of harmful bacteria, including clostridia. Um, you know, chronic use of antibiotics, which is very common in autism. It's, it's what often leads to chronic problems of candida. These kids are put on antibiotics at very early ages, chronic ear infections. I've had kids in my practice who are on, you know, 20 different antibiotics by the time they were three. Yeah. So that's certainly one. Certainly nutritional imbalances, you know, can contribute to that as well. Um, something now that's being recognized is mycotoxins. In fact, ochratoxin is immune suppressive. There's another mycotoxin on the mycotox profile called mycophenolic acid. Mm-hmm. It comes from penicillium mold. And what they're finding is that particular mycotoxin is immune suppressive. Secretory IgA production is compromised. And so there's an increased expression of candida and clostridia bacteria in individuals who have elevated mycotoxin levels. So those are some common factors. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like the, the microbiome I mean, in general, it just seems like toxins are the big reason why. I mean, you could probably lump all of that in toxins, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are, are, are the reason why that's getting imbalanced. Because otherwise, if we were living in nature, then on eating from the earth and didn't have all these toxins, then we probably would have balanced micro, gut microbiomes, right? Well, I, yeah, I think absolutely. And I think the other thing is food. It's the lack of diversity of wholesome food. So I, has, I actually went to my uh, state uh, medical uh, conference a couple of years ago. And one of the conferences actually had three or four lectures on the microbiome, kind of interesting. And there was a nutritionist who gave two great talks. And I still, I still remember the slide she showed. And I can't remember the study where it came from. But they looked at all of the factors that had the greatest impact on the microbiome, from exercise to vitamins to um, antibiotic use. The single greatest impact was the diversity of plant-based foods that you eat on a daily basis. And this person had recommended to try and eat between 12 to 15 15 different plant-based foods per day, if you can. Well, how often does that happen with kids in our society? Or adults. (laughs) Or adults, right, or adults. And then on top of that, now, now take an autistic child you know, who has texture sensitivities, who has smell sensitivities, who has sensory sensitivities. Now it makes it even more challenging because all they want to eat sometimes is the junk food. So they're, they're, they're behind the eight ball right from the get-go. I mean, many of them in early, in early life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've obviously had a lot of great success with your, your client, your patients. 
And um, how much hope do you think that parents with autistic children have with, if they have an autistic child? Tons of hope. I mean, you know, if we don't have any hope, I mean, think of the current situation we're in now, right, with what's happening in our country. Uh, if we don't have hope, then, you know, what are we doing? I mean, uh, you know, how do we get up the next day and move forward? So we have to have hope. But there's also, more importantly, is that there's a long track record now of kids improving in their health, some recovering, some just becoming less severe, more functional over time by implementing a wide variety of strategies. And when I talk about biomedical intervention, I'm talking about looking at things biologically, looking at the comorbid problems, looking at nutritional deficiencies, looking at biochemical imbalances, and working on those things from a, an integrative medicine standpoint. Um, and so in doing so, you're increasing the odds and the chances that your child, your teenager, or the adult that you're working with is going to improve in their, their autistic condition. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have to, as a parent, be doing other things. It's been well proven out that behavioral therapy and speech therapy and occupational mm -hmm. therapy and physical therapy is also important. I'm not exclusionary when it comes to different therapies. In fact, I think it's critical that when you're doing biomedical intervention, you're also working on socialization therapy and speech therapy mm -hmm. because the kids are, they're delayed and many times they need to be taught, um, you know, what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. That clearly comes up from a social standpoint. So the earlier the intervention, the greater chance you have of success. But but absolutely, there's a tremendous amount of hope, and there's also a tremendous amount of help uh, mm -hmm. nowadays for, from practitioners such as myself and practitioners such as you and, and others, things online. I mean, so there, we're, we're living in a different world now than we would even were five, six years ago, clearly a different world than we were 20 years ago when I first got started. Mm -hmm. So have you, able, have you seen adults um, improve their lifestyle as well? Like, well, you said you had someone around their 20s, it sounded like, yeah. but even older, like 30s, 40s, 50s. I, I'm not actually, I can't remember if I've actually, actually seen an autistic individual in their 50s. Um, mm -hmm. I've had a few adults in their 30s. I've not had anybody of that age who I would classify as recovered. Mm -hmm. But I've seen them become uh, less anxious, mm -hmm. have less you know, behavioral problems, um, some of these people are living in, um, you know, housing or home facilities, for example. So you're kind of limited in what you can do. So, you know, by and large, the earlier the intervention, the better. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want parents out there to think that there's nothing that can't be done just because their kid or their, their loved one is of a certain age. I've actually seen that years ago. I always thought it was ridiculous um, where certain people say, well, once they get past the age of eight, there's no point. I'm like that's that's stupid that mm -hmm. you know i don't have never felt that way i've, I've felt that anybody at any age of their life mm -hmm. can be helped uh, and yeah. i still take that view that makes sense i mean if someone that's not diagnosed with autism is just that we could be anxious or we can have yeah. other neurological issues that are just not that extreme and we can if we can still be improved why can't someone that is with a more extreme neurological right. condition be improved with 
just balancing the body out. <laughs> well, and you bring up a good point. These, these same principles apply to people who have other issues. You know, they may not have an, they may not have an autism diagnosis. They may have another kind of mental health challenge. You know, so people, people often go, well, is your autism recovery system website only useful for a person with an autism diagnosis? I'm like, no, the information can be applied to many other types of individuals. You might have somebody who has similar characteristics. They don't have an official label of autism, but they still could be helped by looking at other underlying factors in the body that are imbalanced. So, um, and also as a practitioner, you know, if you take the principles of integrative medicine, you can apply or functional medicine, you can apply that to an individual with autism, but you can also apply that knowledge to somebody with Alzheimer's or somebody with chronic fatigue. There, there's going to be certain differences, obviously, but the, the, the fundamentals of body chemistry, good health, good nutrition, you know, genetic influences, digestive health, et cetera, you know, are relatively similar for, for all of us. It just expresses itself in different ways in different people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's end with this. What do you think is going to happen to society if we don't address these issues with autism? And, and like you said, it can even be with Alzheimer's or other neurological conditions. What do you think society is going to like look like if we don't really put a halt like this? What we're like what we're doing right now with the coronavirus. Everything's locked down. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we're going to be in big trouble. Um, I think we're going to see an overwhelmed medical system, not from an acute, you know, standpoint like we're seeing now with an acute, you know, disease where the hospitals are being overwhelmed, but more from an outpatient. Um, special services type of, of, of situation where, where people are being supported in life care. Uh, we're not going to have enough um, housing facilities of people with special needs. And that's a big one, mm -hmm. you know, because it, for some individuals, it requires a lot of attention, a lot of ongoing effort on a daily basis, just the basic aspects of daily living that need to be supported. There's not going to be enough facilities out there that can handle that. And you're going to have families that won't be able to financially afford to take care of a loved one for the rest of their life. Um, it's already expensive enough to get them through childhood. So yeah, I, I don't know where it goes. I, but I, you know, just look at what's happening now and you can look back on other types of disorders. You know, if the higher the numbers go, chronic illness in general is a major drain on us medically and economically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, well, I'm excited that you have been doing this for several years already and that you're giving this knowledge out to the world and that there are a lot of solutions for people to have a better life and their kids that have autism or even their, their adults, uh, family members. Um, so, so thank you again for coming yeah. on the show. Yeah, is, you're welcome. Is and, there um, a way that the listeners can find you or your courses? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways. Um, I have my own private practice. So the, uh, what's called Sunrise Functional Medicine. So people can consult with me personally through there. And that's mysunrisecenter.com. If you, uh, the individual who's listening is a parent, 
uh, or just a caregiver of a loved one with autism, the autismrecoverysystem.com is a biomedical education website. So there's actually an entire course uh, that was designed for parents on the basic foundations of biomedical intervention. There's also videos and articles and there's a forum. So parents anywhere in the world can actually join this website mm. and post questions to me through the forum of the website, mm -hmm. general questions. Um, so autismrecoverysystem.com. And then if you're a practitioner, I have an entire autism course that was specifically designed for healthcare practitioners. And that's called Autism Mastery Course. So that's autismmasterycourse.com. Okay. I do that course live once a year, but people can join that course at any time. And every time I do a live recording, it's always, every time I do a live lecture, it's always recorded so people can listen to, to it because they're in a different time zone. Mm -hmm. So people can jump into that course at any time. So okay. autism, and we're currently, you know, we just got started actually with that course. So uh, autismmasterycourse.com is the course for practitioners. Autismrecoverysystem.com is the biomedical website okay. for parents. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much again, um, Dr. Wohler, for coming to the show. This has yeah. been a pleasure to pick your brain about autism. And I know that so many people listening to this are going to, leave refreshed and feeling hope and, and hopefully thinking of taking action because I know some uh, situation like this can feel very paralyzing with, um, you know, what, what type of sources people are, are, or what information that they're getting from the media of this is hopeless situation. So, right. So thank you again. That's my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. We'll chat again soon. Um, thank you so much everyone for, for listening to the wellness Trinity podcast and we'll see you guys next week. My Super Immunity Boost Juice Guide is now available on thewellnesstrinity.com. You'll learn how to grow broccoli microgreens, the ingredients I put in my green juice, and super nutritious supplements you can add to enhance your immune system. Again, go to thewellnesstrinity.com and you'll receive your free Super Immunity Boost Juice Guide. Thank you for listening to the Wellness Trinity Podcast. Be sure to subscribe for more wellness tips to help you achieve optimal health. Don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to bring you the best content. See you on the next episode.